Well, good morning, church family. It's good to, uh, it's good to see you, um, if not obviously in person. Um, so uh, as I say every week, though, I want to thank you for bringing the church into whatever space you happen to be in. Uh, we obviously long for the day uh, when we can gather together once again in the same room. I look forward to being able to say thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA. But for now, uh, this is the space that we're in. Um, and it isn't an accident that God actually, before time began, he knew this would happen. This didn't catch him by surprise. Um, and trusting and believing that he is doing a good work in the midst of this. And I think we will look back amidst the, the pain and the difficulty and just see, though, that, that God, as he always does, and he promises to do this, uh, that he's going to bring um, good. He's going to allow the kingdom of light to push back the kingdom of darkness. And so as we're in this, this series called uh, The Light of the Gospel, and we're journeying through Second Corinthians, the reality is, right, we all face uh, particular um, darkness, chaos, confusion. Uh, it can feel even right now like darkness is sort of reigning and ruling. But know this, that Jesus is the light of the world and the light is pushing back the darkness. And we as the church have an incredible opportunity uh, to be part of that mission. And so that's what we're even gonna look at together this morning as we continue our series. And as I've said um, over this, these last few weeks, um, I'm thankful that God has us in this book at this particular uh, time because I believe uh, he has a particular word for us. And so I want to invite you uh, to follow along. So if you have a Bible, get that out, um, or you can go to cpwp.life uh, on a device. Swipe over until you find the card that says message notes, and uh, you can get the text there, uh, follow along, space to, to take notes. But I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 21, and then we'll make our way through this text and see what God might have for us as we're dealing with what we're dealing with in this cultural moment. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, it says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ, it controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
I sent out a short video this week um, to the church. Maybe you saw that and in it mentioned the fact that I've been looking forward to this text. Obviously, I wasn't planning on it being under these circumstances at all, uh, but oh my goodness, there's so much just uh, amazingness in these particular verses. Uh, We don't have time to dive into every last detail, but I hope you will be encouraged as we look at what's going on in the life of the Apostle Paul and in this church in Corinth. And as weird as it might be, you know, doing this whole deal, like you're in your living room or wherever you happen to, to be, and I'm talking to a camera, I know you as the church, you're on the other side of this camera. And so even the words of Paul, where he would say, like, we implore you, be reconciled. Like, that's our heart and our posture here as a church together this morning, that even collectively, we might implore one another, that you might have conversations later today where you get to implore those people that you are with and your loved ones and people that are scattered around uh, the country or even all over the world. Like, what would it look like for us as a church through the means that we're given to implore each other and to remind one another of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we get into this this morning, um, I'm gonna ask you to do something. I will have no idea if you're participating in this or not, um, but that's, that's okay. I wanna pray a prayer, and the words are gonna be on the screen here, and I would ask you, wherever you are, if you're able to pray these aloud with me, and let's ask the Lord to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we might receive from him. And so pray along with me the words that you see. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us this day, amen. So we're gonna look at these first few verses and what's going on here. Really, there's this motivation of love. Throughout this particular passage, what we see over and over again is the apostle Paul is talking about this movement of love, this message of love, how we get to participate in all of this. And he starts out really in these opening verses, 11 to 15, talking about, I believe, what's his motivation to serve people? So if you think about what we've learned about the apostle Paul already in 2 Corinthians, or if you Maybe you're not familiar with him, but let me sort of catch you up to speed. He's this guy who helped start this church in Corinth, and now he's away from them, and he's writing this letter, and he's distant from them. I mean, in some ways, there's, there's this parallel thing that we're experiencing right now. Like, we care for one another, and yet we all can't be together in person. So you can imagine Paul, he's penning the, these words, and he's writing to a church that he loves and that he cares for deeply, and though he can't be with them, he's trying to encourage them. And even this group of people, one of the things that we know is that there's been some controversy and there's some difficulty. And so the Apostle Paul, and he's dealing with all kinds of trials. He's been misunderstood and maligned. There are people that think he isn't an authentic apostle. Um, we know of his, the persecution he undergoes, the sufferings, the, the torment, the thorn in his side. I mean, all these sort of things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And I want to ask this question, why does Paul then continue to do what he does? What is his actual motivation? Like, why doesn't he just like be like, hey, I'm done. Like, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. This is too difficult. Like, what motivates him to keep going? Because the big picture, maybe even in your Bible, it says the ministry of reconciliation is a particular heading that I have in the scriptures before me. It's this overall theme of God doing this reconciling work. And Paul has been reconciled to God. And he's longing for other people to be reconciled. And so one of the first things that we see here is what motivates him, all right? And we don't always tend to think these go together. We're gonna talk about fear and we're gonna talk about love. 
And First John would tell us that perfect love casts out fear. So what's actually going on here? Is Paul worried about condemnation? I don't think that's exactly what's happening. If you look back at 11 to 13, he says, therefore, which is referring back to what we heard in chapter 5, the first 10 verses that Eric preached last week. It ended with this call that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is verse 10, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then Paul says in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So if we just stop right there, what Paul is doing is he wants people desperately who don't know Jesus to be reconciled because the judgment seat that is this coming is terrifying. And so there is, a, there is a fear there. He's like, I don't want you to experience separation from God. God has made a way. And for those that know the love of Christ, he's saying, you now have a new life to steward. He's gonna talk about this more in a few verses. So how are we doing with that? Is there this sort of healthy reverence and fear for the fact that God is ruling and reigning and he's invited us into his story? And Paul is rooted in this. He's resting in this. There's a group of people that some don't even want to hear from him. Some have been mocking him, and there's been this, um, this, this difficulty and this strain, and yet he's like, hey, I know who I am in Christ. So as he continues in verse 12, then he says, or sorry, the end of verse 11, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. He's like, hey, I know that I belong to God, and we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us that you may be, able to, may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not, what, not about what is in the heart. He's like, so I know at the end of the day, Paul is saying, he's like, I've got this confidence in who I am in Christ. And so church, do you have that sort of confidence? Even in this time of this global pandemic, one of the things I think we should be asking ourselves is what is this revealing about the many, many things outwardly that we tend to trust in? And Paul, motivated by love, just says, hey, I want you to have something that's deeper and truer and more beautiful so you might actually flourish, you might be grounded, that you might be rooted in the love of Christ. And so he's like, I'm seeking to persuade you, all right? He's not trying to prove his worth to them because he knows his worth is in Christ Jesus, but he's like, I want to persuade you to trust in where the source of life is. And then in verse 13, he says, and it's kind of this strange phrase, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, but if we are in our right minds, it is for you. And there's a lot of different interpretations about that. But at the end of the day, what Paul is talking about, he's saying, okay, if maybe you say we're out of our minds, you know, um, this is where Jesus' own family and friends that were close to him said he's lost his mind. Like people just can't wrap their minds around somebody who's so committed to the will of God. He's like, okay, Maybe you think we're out of our mind, but at the end of the day, I want you to know, like, I am dialed in, I am focused, I'm trying to persuade you. What I do here, it's for you. Now, if he stopped there, I think, though, it would it'd be easy to be overwhelmed. We need something more, and thankfully, we get it in verses 14 to 15, because it's not just the fear of the Lord, it's the love of Christ. Look with me at verses 14 to 15. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. And now that language there means it controls, it guides, it hems us in, it compels us. It's like being in a flowing river, all right? And it is just taking you along. Like you can't do anything but just go along with it. That the love of Christ is pushing us along. It's pushing Paul along. It says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this love of Christ, 
And so I want to ask us to consider this this morning. Like, are you and I resting in that? Are we compelled by that? And so earlier, you know, we looked at, therefore, you know, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, we persuade others, there's that. Um, but then what we have in this moment is Paul saying, do you understand what Christ Jesus has done for you? This is what ultimately is persuading him. It's the love of Christ that's compelling him. It's controlling him. And he looks at it and he says, one has died, therefore, for all. Therefore, all have died. I've been reading a book lately. I want to ask you this question. It's, will you embrace the J curve? Now, let me explain uh, that. There's a new book by Paul Miller, and in it, he talks about how all of life, the Christian life, one of the ways he says to think about it and about growth would be a J curve. And so if you can picture the letter J, all right, and I'm not sure how to draw this, like which direction that would be on the camera, but you know, you get it. I, hopefully you can picture a uh, letter J. And the idea, he says, if you pay attention to this throughout the scriptures, and it's all over 2 Corinthians. I'll read you another verse that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's this idea of the pattern of Christ's life. The J, as it goes down, it's Christ descending towards death. Like he would condescend to us. He would leave the heavenly realm, all right? The, the incarnation, they would come and he would dwell with us. And it ultimately takes him to death on a Roman cross. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's like, what ultimately motivates me to, to keep going, to share the gospel? He's like, I've been so captivated by the love of Christ. I understood that he has descended, all right? So he's walking out this J curve, and he says that one died for all, therefore all have died. And so the way for you and I to think about our growth as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this wasn't just the pattern for Jesus, it's also the pattern that we're invited into. You wanna grow as a Christian? You wanna know how to handle your suffering? You wanna know how to handle this pandemic and all the things that are going? Is look to the pattern of Jesus who ultimately gave up his life. Now, our hope and our prayer, obviously, is that you wouldn't lose your life all right? But aren't there things in our lives that are just, it's suffering, things that are done to us. There are things that, that are painful. There's loss. There's lament. There are things that we don't want to do to maybe serve somebody else. All of this stuff gets revealed. I'm being reminded over and over again in this pandemic just how selfish I am, all right? Even last night, I'm having trouble sleeping, all right? And I'm like, oh, I'm, like, I'm awake. And, and my wife says, oh, I am too. And I said, yeah, but you don't have to do what I have to do tomorrow, right? So that was my loving response at 2 a.m., right? I mean, like, all of this stuff is coming up. And part of it is because I'm failing to embrace the J-curve, realizing Jesus died for me. And so Paul, the reason he can endure the sufferings and the hardship and all the things is he's embracing this pattern. Christ died, but then what happens? There's this swing up, Christ rose. And so when we commit ourselves to that, what ends up happening is yes, we die, and the selfishness and all of that, or we ask God to work through our suffering and our pain, it actually leads to resurrection. And it's resurrection either in our own life or sometimes for the good of other people. That Jesus experienced a resurrection, but it wasn't just for him, it's for all of us. I love the way Paul says this, just a chapter back, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 11 to 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you see the J curve there? You know, he says, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. We embrace the pattern. So are you embracing your suffering and the challenges right now? Saying, okay, Lord, what are you seeking to teach me? How can you help be used by God for resurrection. 
He says, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. When we die to self, it ultimately can be used for the resurrection of other people. So this is what is motivating Paul. Got me thinking this week, perhaps as a story you're familiar with about um, sacrifice and a declaration of like victory. I mean, that's part of what's happening as we make our way through this, this text. Um, and there was a, um, this ancient uh, Greek man, this is in 490 BC, all right? Some of you that are runners will, will know this. I am not a runner, but I know there are people that are, and some will sign up, not just for little 5Ks and things, they'll do a full-on marathon. And maybe you're familiar with this story. So if you were to go to uh, Greece right now, you would see um, this statue of Pheidippides, all right? I think that's how you pronounce it, his name. 490 BC was this trained runner for the Greek army, all right? And maybe you know the story. This is how the whole idea of a marathon came about, all right? Is that he declared in Athens, all right, we won. Now, the context of this is he had just ran approximately 25 or 26 miles, all right? Um, He had with him, I'm going back because I realized I think I was blocking the camera. But anyway, all right, trying to figure all this out with the slides, all right? This man, all right, he runs 26 miles to declare to those in Athens that the battle in, in Marathon, all right, with, against the Persians, we won. He's like, rejoice, we won. And then he collapses and dies. And so the story is that that approximate 26 miles that he ran is where we now get the marathon from. You think about it, this man who's willing to give up his life so that other people might hear this news. I mean, this is somewhat of what Paul's doing. And the more fascinating account of this man is not just that he ran 26 miles, because people do that all the time. It's prior to that, he actually ran 150 miles to try and enlist the help of Sparta. And when they said, hey, we can't do it right now, he said, okay, I'll run back and let people know. So he ran another 150 miles, and then he ran the 26. So it's no wonder the guy actually ended up collapsing and dying. But what you see here is a man who's pouring himself out for the good of other people so that he can declare, rejoice, we want. Like there's this this victory. It's compelling him. He's just like, I so badly want people to know this good news. And so what we have here, let's look for a few minutes at verses 16 to 20. Paul tells us the results of love. He tells us what happens when this mission goes forward. And so in verse 16, it says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So three things real quickly. When Christ begins to work in your life, there's a new regard, not only of Jesus, as important as that is, obviously, but don't miss this. There's a new regard for other people. And so fellow Christians, when you look at them, do you see them as they are in Christ? That's the calling to regard people of who they are or the person that doesn't yet believe what you believe to see the redemptive possibilities in their life. We have this new regard. We don't look at the flesh. We don't look at the external because God is doing this transformative work. And some of you maybe are thinking, okay, well, I regard Jesus as he's an interesting teacher. Um, I respect him. I like some of the things that he did. He seemed to help a lot of people. But that would be regarding him just according to the flesh. He is also fully God and he's fully man. And he died for you and he rose for you and he's ruling and reigning and he is sovereign. What is your regard for him? And then Paul says, when you begin to embrace that, verse 17, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the most glorious 
verses in scripture. And the language here of new, all right? The word that's being used here is not just about like this new thing that popped on the scene, all right? In terms of like time, duration. It's about the quality. It's about this ongoing, something that gets better and better and better with time. Like this is the work that God is doing in your life individually and cosmically, like throughout the world. This is the story that we're part of. So let me ask you, if you're in Christ, are you resting the fact that you're new? You're not defined by your past, the mistakes, the shame that you carry. Paul is pleading with him. If he could kind of reach through the pages of this letter that he's writing, as if I could reach through the, the camera and just kind of like grab hold of your shoulders, what Paul is doing here, what God ultimately is doing is wanting to reach down to all of us and say, behold, all right? Yeah, the old, it's passed away. It died. It's been put to death. Behold, like pay attention, celebrate the reality, marvel at this. The new has come. And it's not going to get old and disintegrate and it's not going to be this thing that was shiny and new and then a year later it's broken or you've just sort of forgotten about it and you're, you know, it, it, you're indifferent towards it. It keeps getting better and better and better. This is the work that God is doing. Do you believe that? So yes, how do you regard others? How do you regard Christ? Let me ask you, how do you regard yourself? Now, if we regard ourselves based on ourselves, that, that puts us in a precarious spot. But if we regard ourselves as seen by God, through, through the blood of Jesus, like that we have his righteousness, as Paul's gonna tell us, oh my goodness, that changes everything. There's this new creation. That old you has been put to death. Jesus paid for your sin. He did it all. So you don't have to carry that anymore. There's this newness, this new reality. And with that then comes, it was what we see the apostle Paul doing. There's a new calling. Look at verse 18. So he says, all this, all this reconciling work, all of these things that are happening, individually and cosmically, everything, it's from God. It's not me. I'm not the active agent. You're not. We don't make reconciliation happen. We don't make peace with God. God enables peace to happen. He brings reconciliation. So all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and look at this, and gave us, he gifted us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's saying, here's this new reality. There's this love that we've experienced, this story that we're part of, this pattern of love of dying and rising again. And now we get to share this good news with other people. Church, we have an incredible opportunity in this particular moment, even though we are socially isolated and all of that, to demonstrate a peace and a surety that we have in Christ, not in our circumstances, and to be able to point people to the reality of Jesus. There's this calling. It's not the person talking into the camera that has that, that calling alone, all right? Or the church staff or that, those particular roles. It's every single follower of Christ. So you in your home, wherever you happen to be right now, all right? If you're a follower of Jesus, these verses are telling you this is your calling, all right? It's all the other responsibilities and things that you have. This is your invitation. It's been granted to you. Will we steward that well? And so if we think back to that story of the Greek runner, right? Like he was heralding good news. One of the things is so key in this. As we near the end of this text, just know this. You're a herald. This language of ambassador 
you're not an advisor, all right? Maybe another way to frame this is something we talk often about at Crosspoint. We're talking about good news, something that historically has happened versus just good advice. So you think about the moment that we're in right now. I am thankful that there are advisors, okay? I'm thankful that there are those that are out there giving us good, solid advice. Hey, do this, don't do this, stay isolated, you know, uh, wipe everything down, you bathe yourself basically in hand sanitizer, right? Like all, all the things, right? Good advice. We want to pay attention to that, all right? And so it's work for us to do. But now imagine the difference, because that's good advice. What if somebody comes on the scene, all right, and declares, there's been a cure. Here's the vaccine. We found it. Or they declared somehow, some way, the virus has actually stopped. In the moment, right, we're thankful for good advice, try and make the best of this time, and hopefully things don't get worse. But good news, herald stuff, that is entirely different. And that's what Paul's talking about. We're not called to give good advice to people about, hey, here's how to improve your life or seven steps to this. We're called to say something has historically happened. God did it. Jesus did it. Not you, not me. The only thing we contributed to this whole thing is our sin, and Jesus paid for that. He rose again from the dead, and now he invites us to be heralds. You and I get to tell people the good news of Jesus, especially in a time like this. So you think about that celebration, right? Here's how to not get sick versus a cure has been found. That's the difference that Paul is talking about. And so if we're going to be these heralds, we'll conclude with verse 21. For if, uh, if you're looking for like, hey, what, what's a good verse to memorize? Commit this to memory. It's oftentimes referred to as the great exchange, and it's so glorious. So we want to close with this. What motivates Paul ultimately, this motivation of love and these results of love, it all goes back to what we've been talking about and what we see threaded throughout all of this is the ultimate act of love is spoken of in verse 21. And so let me read that again here. It says, from now, or sorry, it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You wanna know how we're gonna continue as ambassadors, as, as agents of reconciliation, as heralds? It's we gotta keep coming back to this reality to rest in this. When things swirling around us right now are chaotic and confusing and dark and there's real legitimate things to lament and to cry out about, may we remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin means there was a death that I was supposed to die, that you were supposed to die. And Jesus, it says, he bore that. He became sin who knew no sin. So that what? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. John Stott speaks of it this way. In this great exchange, the substitution that has occurred, he says, the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Think about that. That's Genesis 3. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to take the fruit. I want to be God. Substituting himself for God. But while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verse 21, understanding the fact that you have been pardoned, but there's also this perfection that you've been granted. So it's not just, okay, you can go, you can be on your way, you, you, you're pardoned, and you still have all this stuff that you carry around. You've been pardoned, and you also, it tells us, you've been given the righteousness of Christ, pardon and perfection. That's the exchange that took place. That's the glorious good news. That's the ultimate act of love. And so in a time, in a place, in a cultural moment where the world is in a lot of need, there is this need to know the love of Christ, that that might compel us as a church, that might, that might carry you along in the hardship and the discouragement, that you might be used by God to be compelled by love to share that with other people. And so I want to close this time in prayer, and then we're going to continue in worship. How will you and I respond? So let's confess. Let's take a moment as, as I lead us in a time of prayer. What is it that you need to confess? And let's celebrate together as we sing songs, and let's think through, will we commit to being agents of reconciliation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the story that we're part of. We thank you for this text. We thank you for your love that you have for us that you loved us so much that you sent your son on this rescue mission and that you invite us now, Jesus, to be your ambassadors, to go out declaring to a world, this has happened. Jesus has made a way to be reconciled. It's not good advice, it's good news. May that nourish and strengthen us during this time. God, we confess any of the ways that we've been looking to just circumstances and outward appearance and just kind of keeping our things all in line, thinking that we'll find satisfaction there. We confess, we repent of those things and we turn and we celebrate the reality of the good news. And I pray that you would use us as a church now more than ever, compelled by love to showcase, God, your glory, your strength, your power, the salvation that you provide. Would you use us, we pray, God, for your glory and our great joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.